What's up, guys? Welcome to episode number 38 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, you're going to hear from Daniel Martinez. Daniel is a strength and conditioning coach at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. He also works as a coach and consultant in his own business, which is Entheos Athletics. And he's also a student and researcher just finishing up his studies at Edith Cowan University in Australia. Daniel and I have interacted for the last couple of years, and I'm extremely impressed with the way that he works Uh, Not only as a practitioner and as a coach, but in the way that he approaches the problems and relationships and organization of strength and conditioning. And it's for that reason that I wanted to get him on the podcast. In this episode, we talked about his background as an athlete, how he came up as a coach and ended up specializing in volleyball. We also talked about the research that he's conducted as part of his master's study at ECU, particularly his case study on VBT and how he squatted a personal record for him by maxing out every day and using a velocity-based training tool to adjust that workload and auto-regulate the periodization. And another one of his papers that we discussed is the periodization of different tests that he's used with his volleyball athletes, what tests might be appropriate and when during the athlete's career, and how often we might want to implement those in the program. And lastly, we finished up with a detailed discussion on the Kinevin framework. This is a decision-making and analytical framework devised by Dave Snowden that provides us with a framework or map to approach the problems of sport performance and strength and conditioning, how we manage our relationships with other people, laying out a framework to understand the challenges that we face and how we solve those problems. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month we offer a 60 minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice on all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep, and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just one pound. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it. There's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Daniel, how's it going? It's good. It's good. Good to have you, my man. So um, for for people who are not familiar with you, who are you and and what do you do? My name is Daniel Martinez. I'm a strength and conditioning coach in San Antonio, Texas, where I've been for about 20 years, been working in 
as a trainer initially and then worked my way into strength and conditioning progressively. I've been doing that as the the primary means of my work for the past 10 years, especially. And then through that process, I just finished grad school with the Edith Cowan University, the master's in strength and conditioning program. And then I've been the strength and conditioning coach for Trinity University women's volleyball program, which is an NCAA division three program. And I've also like done consulting and contracting. I've done some work with a lot of volleyball programs in the Pacific Northwest and then kind of mixed and max mix and match kind of consulting throughout the rest of the country. How did you come to volleyball? Because you're, you're not a volleyball guy, right? Yeah, no, it's I'm not a volleyball guy. I'm not a volleyball coach. And that's actually, it's, it's funny to think about some of the ambiguity that we, we achieve in some of our roles. I've, like, I've been confused by volleyball coaches as a volleyball coach for years because of the way that I'm able to communicate. But, you know, we always talk about speaking the language. Can you talk coach? Like that's something that's important in whatever sports you're working in. I actually came into, I was working as a trainer in a club and they had basketball and volleyball and the volleyball population immediately jumped out as being, you know, very trainable, like very, uh, and the director was a Polish guy named Andrzej Wachlowiak and he was dropping like East European sports science on me. Like, and it was, it's actually funny to look back on it now. Cause I was, you know, I was familiar with a lot of what he was talking about, but yeah. you know, he had a really firm grasp of it and i was thinking like this he's not a he's not a snc he's not a sports science he's not any of those things he was a volleyball coach but the fact that he had that comfort with that like that definitely made an impression on me so i worked with him for a couple of years and then kind of uh i ended up against uh the advice of one of my mentors at the time uh uh, Michael Boyle, I actually took over a volleyball club and then became an owner and then kind of, you know, ran that with, uh, a couple of coaches that were really close to me and really helped, I think my growth, uh, as a coach overall in the time that we did that together. And then I, uh, when I got married, became a dad, gutted the operation, sold it to my partner and then, uh, kind of altered my trajectory from there, which I think I've done a couple times now that always takes a bit of courage and, oh, yeah. uh, and, and now I'm, yeah, now I'm on a different track, you know, just to kind of reject something and say, you know, I, cause there was a point where I really was, I was as much an administrator as I was a coach and leader. And I actually had hired somebody to be in leadership so I could get back to more coaching, but they got, they got snatched out from underneath of me and moved to Montana. And, uh, it, it was two people. His, his wife is now the head coach for the volleyball program there at university of Montana. And we're still close, but literally I just finished, uh, uh, basically coming to an agreement with my former partner. And two weeks later he comes in, he's like, Hey, we got an offer. We're moving to Montana. And I just had, you know, that was my leadership staff and that gutted the operation. And within a year I was, I was out of volleyball completely. <laughs> really? So was, was your yeah. goal always to move into physical preparation, strength and conditioning, or is that something that you kind of gravitate towards? Because, you know, I started out as a, as a commercial trainer myself, but that was always yeah. the goal. Yeah, I think I definitely had the intent from the from the very very early stages, and that's where you know you just find certain messages that you connect with. And then I was pretty fortunate in that that was I guess it was still pretty early if you want to call it the internet age where I got connected with uh, Boyle, and then through him Charlie Weingroff and other people that were very central to it. Like I would say challenging, you know, current thinking at the time and being willing just to, I always tell people, you know, your truth has to have some edge to it. And that's the thing that people are hard up on Charlie about sometimes. And otherwise is I'm, I'm like, 
you know, and uh, Charlie says, uh, I think it's a wrestling line, but he always says, you know, all you have to do to be the bad guy is tell the truth, you know, and it's like, yeah. and sometimes, you know, that's hard for people. And then, you know, figuring out how to navigate that over time, I think has helped my growth as well, though, is figuring out, you know, how to time those conversations, uh, but also how to know when you need to compromise and when you need to stand and fight, kind of like what we were talking about just before. Yeah. And um, what what prompted going back to, to school to do the, the masters at ECU, and how have you found that? The mass the program with ECU was fantastic. Like yeah. I would say specifically, like, and I was really fortunate in this regard. One of the main things was Dan Baker, Dr. Shepard. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with Dr. Shepard, but. Uh, he's got a ton of great work with the Australian Institute of Sport, but also with volleyball specifically. And I, I gravitated towards his work early on because to me, it's just there's a certain level of pragmatism that's demonstrated with Australia and New Zealand and, and to a certain extent now with the UK as far as the direction of where their structures like the EIS are being uh, formalized and how the funding is kind of that's obviously supported things quite a bit. But, you know, that was very attractive to me uh, in seeing that. And th that was the main driver, I think, behind me going to the to the ECU program. And I literally for our practicum, when I went over to Perth, I literally was there the last time that Dr. Shepard was working there before he left back to Canada to work with the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. So I literally like, I felt like it was, you know, like simulation theory. I felt like it was just based around me, but you know, <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess I put myself in the right place for there to be an opportunity for that to happen. That's a, that's a big part of it. But that was, that was, yeah, that was deliberate. I have an opportunity with Trinity where we've talked about now for years that I would move into a full-time role and that there's some specific opportunities for my kids where it involves, you know, basically discounted college if I was to nice. to take that role. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a big, that's a big check check mark for, uh, for parents is, you know, if you can find a way to, to give your kids an opportunity through your work. Uh, so I've I'd kind of realigned things towards that. I was perfectly happy working as a private coach and never really was attracted to the, the collegiate environment, but that changed my thinking. And obviously with collegiate setting, it's more of like, you got to be willing to check those boxes and doing a master's degree. I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, then the ECU program aligned with my needs, but it was also like something that, you know, like, uh, I felt like would, would really affect, it would be a differentiator as far as versus other candidates here in the U S Nick Winkleman had done the program and had, had done really well and spoke really highly of it. And obviously Nick's a uh, fantastic coach and just a brilliant guy. So, uh, that, that influenced me as well. Is there, is there much scope within the program to, to tailor it to what you would like to learn about? Because it seems that you've, you've done that, uh, to quite an extent and also you're, you're starting to get published now with your own research yeah you know uh i think that there definitely is like i think just within the courses so basically you know you do simulated submissions where your work is expected to be publishable and it's graded as such you know the people who are who, who are the leads for the program dr half and dr nymphius i mean they're editors with specific journals and they're getting their work published and it's you know they're 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 doing fantastic work in their specific areas of expertise so that's part of your process so when you turn that paper in literally all i did was I, like I request permission all the time just cause I'm, I'm weird about formality, but, uh, uh, and they always say, yeah, you're, you're perfectly able to submit this to a journal and, you know, go through whatever process that is. And I've done that with the Australian strength and conditioning journal. And I've done that with the NSCA now. So, you know, I, I basically just worked my butt off to make sure that the work was high standard and then going through the review process with those specific journals. I mean, they push you pretty hard. This last paper that I have is a uh, consideration for power and capacity in volleyball vertical jump performance. And that one, the, and it, you know, 
uh, I'm trying to think of how to put it nicely, but, uh, <laughs> you have to, <laughs> I, I, I tried to, I tried to tell them, no, I don't want to do that. And they've pushed me and pushed me to where I'm like, okay, I'm like, like, uh, it basically just required a lot more work, not on the paper itself, but on some of the additional materials, well, you know, extra pictures. Of getting it. Accepted. Yeah. So, you know, the, the good thing is it'll end up being a good paper. It just ended up being a lot more work. And I've just been swamped with some some other new projects that I've been working on, you know, for stick stuff and whatnot. So that's uh, it, it's you know, it's difficult to manage it all. Just juggling a lot of different things. How many research papers are published are you at now? Uh, this third paper I just mentioned that that'll be my third paper through the yeah. master's program. Uh, the other, the other, the first, the first one was reactor strength index, reactive strength index modified and flight time contraction time as monitoring tools. And then this, the other one is, uh, a, a case study on squatting every day with velocity based training and auto regulation, which is ridiculous. And then this last one was kind of a volleyball specific, really kind of an accumulation. It was for my physiological test for elite athlete athletes course. Yeah. And uh, it's basically a testing and training uh, paper that talks about coordinating the process, talks about periodizing testing in the same way that we periodize training. And then it talks about specific tests for volleyball, but also the process overall of general and specific and how you move between those things. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what, what are the factors that have to be considered in your opinion about what test you use when and why and, and how that should flow throughout the year? Cause I'm, I'm guessing from what you're talking about there, for example, if you're doing a very maximal strength focus block, you're not going to start testing RSI and stuff like that. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Well, to a certain extent, I think, yes, I think with RSI mod, you could maybe do that because so basically, and that's one of the points that I made, I think I did an RSI mod paper, but it's relevant to the, to the, uh, the volleyball paper as well is, is RSI mod and the isometric mid dipole are both, both considered to be, uh, significant towards explosiveness, but characteristically, when you look at them, I mean, yeah, positionally, you've got some of the same things overlaid, but they're very different. Right. And the, 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 uh, your ability to monitor those things efficiently from week to week, like you may not want to alter training as much for the uh, isometric methipole quite as frequently, but you could use RSI mod as well. And that you could do that one a lot faster, a lot easier. And so to me, it's like, it's, it's, you know, maybe you're doing isometric methipoles every two, three or four weeks and you're doing RSI mod, you know, once per week or once every seven to 10 days, depending on how travel and competition schedules line up. How, how is that and modified? I, sorry. With the, the RSI? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a counter movement jump. So it's just, it's so RSI would being the fast stretch shortening cycle and RSI mod being slow stretch shortening cycle. And that's another thing. Some people like, like I make the comparison with the sprint model of, uh, you know, if you look at sprints as being acceleration based and max velocity based, that's, that's basically the way I look at it as being, you know, different points on the spectrum. And then the, the second, you know, important part of that is I'm like, okay, well, if, if, if some people have kind of argued about whether, it should be considered reactor strength index modified because it's, it's, they're different qualities, sure. but I'm like, yeah, but it's a lot like a long to short and a, a short to long program in sprints is how do you get to those speeds? And I think that that tells you something in terms of your developmental structure that if you haven't done low intensity jumps at all, 
And then, you know, moderate intensity and then high intensity being more reactor strength index, you know, uh, depth jumps, essentially. Mm -hmm. If you haven't done those things, and I think you've, you know, I used the term jump the shark before. Uh, so that just popped in my head, but you're getting ahead of yourself. So to yeah. me, it's, it's, I think you can move more towards an RSI measure as a measure of more specific reactive strength, yeah. but it would progress through RSI mod and whether you, you're using, you know, force plates or, uh, I think the my jump app, I still haven't looked into this. I talked about this with somebody recently, uh, or the my jump app. If you're doing something where essentially you need, uh, you need your contraction time. So the time that it takes you to do the jump yeah. for, you know, the, the whole, uh, contraction basis, and then you need your jump height. And yeah. then you can register both of those in meters per second. And that's an important, you know, uh, leveling process for how you get to that. Because RSI mod would obviously come in fast and with minimal ground, con ground contact times where uh, the counter movement jump is going to be slow. And but the, the degree to whether slower or faster it is depends a lot on the characteristics of the athlete and what their contraction times are in their sport. You could see really fast contraction times. So I have there's a. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the, I think it's Kip. There's a paper on a volleyball on the RSI mod that talks about, you could have a fast jumper with uh, high force. You could have slow jumpers with uh, low force and you could have the different, you know, basically it's a four by four matrix where you could have, you know, a, a high speed, but low force jumper. So, so, you know, basically somebody still might be able to jump high, but how they jump is going to yeah. change a little bit depending on the type of athlete they are. And some of those things like the, the, to me, that's something else you can look at, like with sprint performance, if you look at sprint momentum, you basically have mass and velocity. So a lot of times people are like, Oh, well college, you know, college strength conditioning in the U S they don't get any faster. I'm like, yeah, but bigger. a lot of those kids, yeah, they put 40 or 50 pounds on it. If yeah, you're running yeah. the same speed, then that's a lot more momentum. And yeah. that, in terms of a differentiator, that's significant. That's something that people have to be willing to look at. Yeah. Um, so would you say, like, you know, the RSI, RSI mod, it's kind of allowing you to drill down a little bit deeper and say, well, we're not just interested in what they got. We're interested in why they got it. And, and Absolutely. That yeah. Because your, your programming after that. That's right. There, Cause there's a relationship with fatigue where a lot of people, they'll be able to, they'll be able to maintain their jump heights. So if you're just looking at jump height, which is not a terrible thing to do, it's just, but if you're not sensitive to how they're jumping, then better athletes can jump just as high, but you won't be able to tease out the fatigue because they've changed their contraction basis. So, uh, you know, you could have somebody who has, uh, the exact same RSI, uh, RSA mod that's just altered in, uh, in how high they're jumping or how long they're taking it. So indexes can be a little bit sketchy in that way because you assume that there's a one-to-one -one relationship with change yeah. and that's a huge assumption, but you know, it, it's still something that can give you some pretty meaningful insight into, uh, into a more complex relationship versus just jump height. For sure. And then would you say that uh, you, you kind of alluded to it, the fact that the RSI is, unmodified is a lot more representative of like high level plyometric activities so would yeah. you would you put more weight on one of those um measures like the rsi mod earlier in the athlete's career and then kind of right. put more emphasis on the rsi as they progress in their training because you're not necessarily going to improve a test that you've not been training similar to absolutely 
Right, exactly. Familiarization is, is like certainly something I know a lot of people are not confident in introducing. That's kind of the tricky part of it, because I think if you don't have long term development where you've got like academy based into pro scheme like some clubs do, then you have problems where the last thing you're thinking about is doing something like that when you've got somebody who's, you know, their training history is not good. They've got some injury and then you're going to start doing RSI mod to evaluate readiness is not a great strategy, you know, so it's if you're not able to align those things with your developmental structure, then I think you've got to be more considerate. And in that case, it's like, would you, could you still use a counter movement jump? Yeah, I think you could do that pretty easily and you could still, you know, take out some meaningful information. You might want to look at some other complementary measures, uh, to, uh, support the, the direction that you're going. But I mean, that's just, you know, those are just compromises you have to make that depend on context. For sure. So, with the, the VBT case study that you did, mm-hmm. talk, me, talk me through that and, and why it was uh, so crazy for you. So I, I, I was a competitive Olympic lifter for eight years and I was like, I was basically at the end of it and I, and I hadn't for a long time because weightlifting was at that point, it was really, you know, my programming was pretty specific. Uh, I wanted to see what I could do in my squat and then it actually, so a couple of things aligned, which was I stopped weightlifting. I had my last competition in October and I read, uh, Matt Perryman's squat every day book. And I was like, and I totally connected with a lot of the message. And I was like, yeah, I said, in terms of, you know, high frequency, highly specific training, I was like, yeah, a lot of this stuff is, is, I think it's not as, as simple of a, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Abajiev has, oh, uh, so, yeah. what's that? Uh, yeah. Well, Abajiev being like the original, right? Yeah, like, yeah. uh, his, his work is when he talks about the train state, like anybody who's trained has, has, you know, sensed that where, you know, your, your biology is more aligned with like this kind of, uh, this loaded, you know, where, you know, like, uh, I think that, you know, NFL athletes talk about the grind where they have whatever, 16 weeks, 18 week season. And then at the end of it, they just feel like through that whole time, they're fine. And then at the end of the season, because of the way they manage their stress, they feel like they got hit by a train. That was me. I I did a, a max out everyday program from Travis because yeah. we you know we spoke and I wanted to try it out and yeah. I did it and did it and did it and did it and I started getting the uh the niggles and then yeah. it got to the point where I couldn't squat an empty bar without knee pain and then I stopped yeah. and it has taken me months to get over it but it was it yeah. wasn't until I kind of said well you know I need to take a break here then it, it after I took a break it got worse Right. Right. Yeah. And it is, it's a really tricky thing to, to navigate. And I can't speak, obviously it's a case study. So in terms of like statistical power or anything like that, it's really low, but it was something that I felt like I was like, you know, I don't necessarily know that squatting is a great idea. And, you know, I talk about that in the paper is, is that's not, you know, the times when you can dedicate those resources towards singular qualities are really low. But when you look at that with specific models, like Bondercheck's model, I'm like, okay, you have large athletes throwing a small implement. Like, can you do a, crap ton of throwing. Yeah. 100%. Like, of course you can. But if you try to do that with sprinters and you're trying to, you know, do different volumes of sprinting at different loading, then like eh, a little bit, but you know, a really sensitive, you know, activity, I think. And so figuring out how to align those things, I think is tricky for me. It was successful. And that was the, so the other half of that is that I actually had those really common, you know, whatever, like you call them CrossFit plates or whatever they're, they're called a high tech in the U S but they're just like, trying to think fiberglass, I think is material, uh, you know, rubber bumpers, but they're the cheaper kind of, you know, version of them. And I actually found out after I'd squatted 400 pounds for the first time at like 175 pounds body weight or something. The first time I'd done that, I was pumped. And then I found out my plates were light 
And I was bummed. I was like, and I was scared to death. I wouldn't get another chance at it. So I thought, okay, well, let's look at this. And I, so I read Perryman's book and then I decided that I was going to do, you know, something like it. I still didn't know that that's what I was going to do, but I was like, okay, I'll use my Tendo and I'll monitor rep speed and I'll try to bias it towards, you know, high quality, high intensity work, you know, uh, and then I'll, you know, supply adequate variation. And then, uh, so I started doing it and, it went really well for me. And, you know, I ended up squatting 400 pounds on the last day of it. And it was totally legit. I've got video. So I always tell people, you know, okay, well, how do you, how does that look when you squatted your, you know, your, whatever, yeah. whatever your PR was, I want to know what that looks like. And, uh, and then that, that I, I put it all together on Dan Baker's advice. He basically said, Daniel, this is, you've got a ton of really good data. You yeah. need to really write this up. This should be part of your, uh, part of your process with, uh, ECU. And so I did that and, and it, 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 I guess it got published that well, they picked the RSI paper first, which I was actually happy about. Cause I felt like it was overall a stronger paper, Yeah. but, uh, the case study one, it got published, I guess it was uh, December and Corey Kennedy was my co-author on that. I should mention because he got, he got kind of nixed in the beginning. The first, first issue they put out didn't have his name on it, but he was my co-author and he asked me a lot of good questions kind of retroactively as we were putting the paper together, uh, on, uh, on, you know, the scientific, like, you know, I, I hadn't really considered the nature of my hypothesis or what my intent was and other things. So as we put that together, Corey was really influential. He's a, I, I, I was hoping he'd be able to jump on the call with us today because uh, we tended to have really great dialogue with this kind of thing. I thought he would help. But uh, he's at INS Quebec and, and is a really great strength and conditioning coach and leader. So how how were you using the the velocity tool as to to auto regulate is it that you had a, a set plan of uh, intensities or velocities that you were looking to hit and then based on your your readiness on a given day you adjust up or down or or is it, are you setting volumes based on velocity how does it work yeah so i looked at an absolute and relative threshold so for each day i would do a one rm and just depending on the activity i would compare it to the absolute maximum in terms of like global load if you will so like being the belted back squat was like, I was like, I can't squat more than I can on a belted back yeah. squat. Like that's, that's the best I'm going to be able to do. And then on a front squat. So for instance, you know, like a lot of people, your front squat max might be 90% of your back squat max. So I always looked at that. Okay. So if I'm doing 80% of my max and front squat on the day, well, that's 20% below my absolute. And so I looked at those relationships and then subjectively put the intensities together. So where I, I supplied adequate variation. And then as far as, uh, the rep speed part of it, the Tendo beeps when you drop 10% velocity. Okay. And I asked people, you know, I asked Dr. Mann, other people, and they're like, ah, you know, there's something in the Soviet sports review. I couldn't find it. And the yeah. best I could do was, uh, I think it was, it might be Sanchez Medina. Some of the Spain, uh, uh, sports scientists who've, who've done a lot of velocity based training literature. That was the closest I could find. And that was basically what they said was, you know, you should determine that in advance, which we did. And I did by, you know, using the Tendo's threshold that it, you know, like I said, it beeps when you drop 10%, yeah. but that one, obviously I think some people, Dr. Baker, Dr. Baker and others have, uh, pointed that, you know, depending on the adaptation, the drop off could be different. Yeah. And that's something I've been looking at with cluster sets and other things recently where, uh, trying to determine, you know, what the, what the basis of velocity drop off should be. And then, you know, can you compromise depending on the adaptation that you're seeking, whether you're, you know, not doing, you know, uh, 
20% drop-offs or 30% or 50%, those drop-offs, uh, trying to see if – I would bias things for me and my focus and my philosophy towards quality. Sure. So I'm trying to see if – can I capture a high percentage of those adaptations while minimizing some of the some of the performance loss, if you will – by uh by allowing that you know those extra velocity changes you know, doing... junk reps in exactly exactly yeah. and then some of it too is like you know i biased i could sense on certain days that i biased where the last maybe 10 percent of the rep you know you accelerate faster yeah, yeah, yeah. and so you skew your average velocity up or your yeah. peak velocity up because you finished it hard but the rest of the rep was garbage where it was really hard you know yeah. like so you know you can do things like that and that's something where you've got to be you know, you got to be attentive to it. I know, uh, there was one, I think it's, uh, the bar sensei people, they're trying to start use a metric of the first zero to 100 milliseconds of like the concentrate. They call it like pop 100. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Like an RFD is, uh, they're, they're trying to use that. And I, I mean, it doesn't have anything in the literature on it, but obviously it is a significant point of, uh, of rep speed is that, that initial burst. Cool, man. So I, you're moving more into the strength diagnostic stuff and, and, and force plate uh, research now. What, what kind of stuff are you looking to, to do with that? And what have you found? Yeah, a lot of the same stuff, which is coordinating, you know, isometric tests just for their stability as measures. And then also for from a, an efficiency standpoint, as you can do them a lot easier than uh, dynamic strength tests. I still I'm looking at dynamic strength tests as well, but just more along load velocity spectrum. So uh, Peter Mundy's research, other people, you know, where they're looking at absolute loads, uh, and looking at those relationships, Dr. Shepard had, I think there's a book called elite science and sport. It's like a Scandinavian. It's basically a collection of, you know, research papers or from a conference that occurred and they just put it into a book you can find on Amazon, but that's, that's that you'll find that in the text, the SNC for sports performance text, which I really like the performance diagnostics chapter that him and Dr. Gabbett, uh, wrote for that, for that book. And they talk about, I believe it's, uh, 25, 50 and 100% you know, how you should be able to represent those loads against, you know, a, a body weight, uh, in terms of your power output and how, you know, how those should line up curve wise, you know, a lot like what you'd see on an RSI, where if you go too high off of a box, you'll see the ground contact time increase and, and it goes down, you know, yeah. in your ISI score. Yeah. The same thing happens in load velocity ranges, uh, where, you know, where somebody's exposed could tell you, you know, like the JB Moran stuff, like whether somebody has got a force or velocity bias, and where you should target their training. And that's basically where I think strength diagnostics is, is it's just being a little bit more sniper versus being shotgun. Mm. And I think that obviously has a lot of merit in uh, team sports is if you can figure out how to align that with your needs, whether you're talking about skill-based athletes or, you know, more athletes who you're just interested in momentum or strength, there's a lot of room for us to grow in that, in that regard. Have, have you tried to implement that in a team environment and have you, experience any difficulties with that because obviously you know my mind jumps to limited time limited resources how how do you balance all of that stuff with giving them what they need yeah i think so the altus guys like i'm not going to remember the name of the, the the rule but they've got so there's a really great rule that they had where they said instead of instead of looking at it as being like uh you know do 
eight sets of two or something like this, they would say, okay, well, we're going to take 15 minutes and we're dedicating it towards this quality. And I think that's a really good equalizer for team sport construction because you do have where like, you know, if you're talking about track and field athletes, you know, they might lift for 90 minutes, right? Like they might have, that might be a major, major part of what they're doing. And that's considered highly specific for some of them. If you're talking about throwers, that's a major part of the development where for, you know, if you're talking about in season athletes and team sport athletes and others, then, you know, you might have 45 minutes. So, Mm -hmm. but my thing has been always like, I'm looking at my primary, you know, my principal loads is the way that I put it. And to me, that's my, that's my target, if you will. And then the softness of that is brought on by whether I'm going to put some extra, uh, attention towards, you know, what you would call, you know, whatever supplemental or auxiliary, those things to me, I'm, th- that's the first thing I'm willing to drop and just let it go because I know that those are inherently more stable, but they're also less relevant towards KPIs. So depending on the point of year that you're in, like, I mean, I, I'm willing to let that go if, if it means that I'm going to strengthen the, the clarity and the quality of the signal that I get in my, my main means. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that in terms of, uh, how that affects, affects, you know, not necessarily peaking, but you know, the, you know, basically if you're having a good day and if it's worth, you know, putting 15 or 20 minutes towards, you know, like your first, whatever, you know, your first series, your first circuit, because that's where, uh, that's where the difference is going to be felt. So better to do one thing excellently than, than several things rushed and and low quality. Exactly. Exactly. And then sometimes that, that lines up really well with the construction of like a weekly microcycle, which is, that's where my criticism of some of the the current monitoring stuff is, is that that's microcycle construction is, is the way that we align monitoring for the most part is that that's what, you know, if you look at Bush Snyder's and Dan path, like the way that they construct microcycles, like if you're not looking closely at that and like, you know, high, low models, all those things, like, I'm like, that's all the same stuff is they're just looking at how do you maximize adaptation for compatibility and complementarity, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's basically what we're trying to do. And some of those things is, uh, I wrote about that in that the recent article I, I sent over to you is, is, you know, how you classify the loading that you're doing in the weight room, you know, like some days you might be better off stimulating and Cal Dietz has even talked about this, like moving weights to before practice, which some people are like, that's crazy. And it's just, I'm like, it's really, it's absolutely not crazy. Like yeah. it's, and it could actually create that, you know, whatever the, I would say maybe skill reserve yeah. or performance reserve where you're getting a little bit of a potentiation effect by, using something that truly overloads and that's something that within the constraints, you know, like that allows, you know, for that short-term enhancement. But we just have to be mindful of whether that's a stimulatory load versus like a developmental load that we're going to generate exactly. a lot of fatigue with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, would you, you know, you mentioned with the Altus guys, from the perspective of quality and making sure that you're hitting your mark physiologically and you get what you need rather than come in and say, you know, give me five sets of five at this load, whatever. If you're saying, listen, you got 15 minutes here, you have to give me 25 total reps above this velocity threshold, organize it however right. you want. You think that's going to be a more productive strategy in, in, in that environment? Yeah. Like some of us with the way that like, cause I'm, I'm like, I mean, gosh, I'm a Nazi with set and rep schemes because I'm, I'm like, in terms of, you know, stimulating what I want, Like, you know, kind of like Dan says in terms of getting the train there on time is I'm like, I kind of get like, I'll skew towards, you know, potentiation on the maximum strength side and not grinding where we're, you know, hitting too many. So then, and I'm more, 
conservative in that way. But that means, you know, like if we're doing, instead of doing, you know, sets of three at, you know, 80 to 90%, then I might do sets of two and just leave her up in the tank. And then I might do a broad pyramid where we're doing like a set of two at 80% and then sets of one, you know, two or three sets of one at 90%. And then a last set of two, or maybe I don't do that last set of two because I'm going to stimulate some other capacity based on that, uh, the potentiation effect from the, the max strength. It all just depends on, you know, what, what that actually looks like in a, uh, you know, how somebody's performance is, if, you know, in terms of your, whether it's velocity-based training, however you're, you're quantifying the, the quality of that work performed. I think that's, that's where you're looking at that to, uh, to dictate, you know, what your next step is. Mm. And so that, that there's, you know, in, in the private coaching environment for me is where I'm most fluid with things like that. Cause obviously, like you said, the constraint in team sports environments is, is time. And then the other demands and, you know, not getting or, or not seeing what you feel like it should look like. And then how that influences, whether you're, uh, whether you're executing a plan B or, or what your next step is. Yeah. So, I mean, we, I always think, well, you know, not to put people in, in, in certain boxes, but you always have guys yeah. that are more, uh, technical, more knowledge-based, and then you have the guys that more understand the the philosophy and, and structure of an organization and so on, but maybe weaker in that. And one of the things that I like about the stuff that you put out is obviously you're, you're competent in both and you consider both in everything that you do. And one of the right. things that you brought to my attention was the um, Kenevin uh, framework. And right. you know, I'm still getting stuck into it. I heard Al Smith talk about that at the Boston Sports Medicine Group okay. uh, in, in 2015. But right. do you want to kind of dive into that and talk about what it is and what you've got from it and how it kind of shapes what you do? Yeah. Like, so one of the, the recent things I think you and I connected on was the differential leadership, the example. And that one I actually, so I adapted that from, uh, David Tenney had talked about Kenevin framework at the NSA coaches conference in, uh, 2016, I guess. Uh, and, uh, but it basically like, to me, it's like, okay, everybody's like, oh, it's chess, not checkers. And I'm like, no, sometimes it's checkers, you know, like sometimes yeah. it's more mechanistic and it's more like this person is giving you a task and they want clarity. They don't want ambiguity. They want you to take this from point A to point B, and there's going to be rigid constraints around that. And other times they're going to be like, do your job how you need to do it. And with, you know, with whatever resources we have, and you've got a lot of freedom in that. And that's more complex, right? Like you're allowed to manipulate those constraints and that's going to affect like, I mean, that affects everything that you're able to do, you know? And like, I think some of us by not orienting that process properly, we allow, constraints that are not there to limit our ability to do our jobs. Like most people, like when you have a real conversation with the sport coach and if you can gain some clarity, like I always tell people, okay, uh, like I think we were talking about this before, but my friend, Nate Brookerson, he had a, he had a discussion with the sport coach where, uh, you were talking about doing this in your environment. And he just had a very similar conversation where he said, okay, who do we have to be? What do we have to do? And, uh, uh, you know, and then basically the, you know, the coach is telling him, well, we, we want to be like this team. We want to compete with this team, this team. He said, well, I know what these teams are doing and we have to align our process with that if we expect to beat them. And what they're doing is not beating the crap out of their kids and hammering them. It's, you know, it's biased towards whatever you want to call that, call it excellence, you call it mm. sports science, you call it whatever, like it's biased towards good process and, uh, and consistency, you know, all of the things that people would, you know, you know, checklist manifesto it, like in terms of what you're looking for in a good training environment, that's what they're doing. But how you get about having that conversation with a sport coach, like that was, to me, that was very mechanistic. And that was a really controlled way of demonstrating 
what that conversation should sound like and what it looks like with the sport coach, right? Like how you guide them to the right path. And then if they say, well, I don't know how to navigate that. And you're like, well, I happen to (laughs) have a pretty good idea on how to handle this. You got to let me do my job. And then if you're able to do that, then you've got all the complexity that you want to lay out the process based on your constraints without having a coach weigh on you as treating it as being something that's complicated. So within the Kinevian framework, there's ordered and unordered. And on the ordered side is simple and complicated. And the example used, they use this in team of teams, which is an excellent text that talks a lot about it is uh, on the ordered side, on the complicated side, they say it's like a watch, right? Like you fix a gear and the watch is working again. But on the complex side, it's, it's considered the emergent realm, like where, uh, things aren't as straightforward. You're not going to have causation. Everything affects everything, right? Exactly. Whereas everything watch, affects everything. It's, it's kind of uh, causal. One thing exactly. affects one thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, even, you know, with conversations like, uh, what I was talking about with Nate, like things like that, I'm like, okay, that's, uh, that's a really great example of how to navigate dialogue like that, to get somebody to give you a little bit more autonomy, uh, or, you know, to allow you to collaborate more effectively. And that's a huge thing. Like is, is, you know, do you have that kind of trust established with the sport coach? Like that would go a long way towards giving you more trust from someone. And the the other side of that to me, I, like I always, like I'm almost, you know, too repetitive with this, but I always tell people, one of the things I lead with is, you know, what are the challenges of your environment? Because most people love to brag and talk about, oh, you know, like if you come into their club, they're going to be like, oh, you know, we're doing great in this. We're doing like how we talked about, oh, I'm doing all this velocity-based training, all this stuff, da, da, da. Like, well, my issue at, at my level currently is like a lot of parents. Like, okay, how do you navigate parents? And I'm like, because I'm not willing to Avoid not them. say what I <laughs> – Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm not willing to not say what I have to say. And that leads like, I'm like a lot of times when people think about what my environment must look like, I'm like, I mean, in some ways I'm an, I'm an exile with certain, you know, people in certain clubs in my area. But I think if I'm not doing that, then my integrity is shot, you know? Mm. So that's, that's the way that I look at is some of those relationships. Like I'm perfectly willing to torch a bridge if it means it's going to strengthen the relationship I have with either a specific athlete, cause I'm willing to have their back or other things, you know, but uh, some of that, that, that's a different process in managing and navigating your, your program's growth than trying to maximize, you know, either profit or, uh, or the relationships you have that lead to you making more money or things like that. It's like, but I, I've never gotten anything but good things in the long term by doing it that way. But that's, uh, At the I would say short term pain, right? 100% because it's it's with a lot of that it's like yeah I mean could I be more popular right now if which I think a lot of people assume that that's what I am but I mean I'm kind of an unpopular figure like as a strength and conditioning coach and in, in, in volleyball specifically in my area because I'm not willing to cast those things aside and I'm not willing to say hey this is wrong and look at their competitive schedules and say like yeah I think you should skip this clinic and I think you need to tell that coach that like no you don't need to be in the I, I lost one of my best athletes um to an ACL tear in her, uh, sophomore season, uh, not to, you know, be too, uh, put too much out there, but, and I had a conversation with the parents basically saying, this is wrong. And that, that conversation happened on a Wednesday night. And I basically said, Hey, if, if, if this process, if we don't correct this, then there's going to be some negative consequence. And that Saturday at a tournament tore ACL. And then, uh, and then, you know, I going through a rehab process, like, 
that was the second thing is uh, uh, I basically there was a point in their, their rehab process where I could see that the direction they were going was biased back towards getting back out on the volleyball court. And I was like, this is a mistake. And I essentially ended up, you know, we kind of removed each other from from our our process together that 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 <laughs> led to an end. And uh, unfortunately, that same athlete, you know, had a retear in uh, her senior season. And that's, you know, altered her career trajectory a little bit. But, you know, I mean, I've things like that. I'm, to learn, you know, I think there's not many people that rehab from three. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's and it's unfortunate. Like and, and something like that, like I think back on that thing all the time and I'm like, did that allow me to do what I needed to do? Like, there's a question I took from General McChrystal's biography, who's he's does a team of teams. But uh, he says, what does the team I support? What what do they have to do and who do they have to be and how do I best support them to do that? And he uses the words command, but I'm not a commander. So I'm like, I use the word support. I'm like, how, what do they need to do? Who do they need to be? And that's, those are two things that I think you have to think about. And then how do I best support them to do that? And I don't know that I handled that, you know, in the best way, but I, I, I couldn't think of a different way for me to handle it at the time and not, you know, like I said, maintain some integrity. So in terms of that framework, do you, do you think, you know, using it to influence your decision-making, how you interact with people, how you analyze problems. Do you think that it's, it's useful as a group to identify which of those quadrants you're working in as, yeah. a, as a team, what your challenge is, and then say, well, listen, if we're in this, if we're in a complex system and I'm, you know, I'm, right. I'm being selfish, I'm thinking about rugby, that's a complex right. environment. Like you, you have right. to have, you have to be able to approach that task in a certain way. It's not as simple as, oh, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this in the gym and, and everything's going to go well. That's right. And, 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 and I think that's, so there's a positive and a negative to that. Cause it's like, uh, the Dr. Sands paper that I referenced in that recent article is talks about the contingency necessity, uh, model for, uh, for you essentially predicting performances or predicting, predicting events. And basically we can't, we can't handle or predict contingencies, things that are going to pop up that like alter, you know, our path essentially for our athletes and teams. But, uh, in terms of necessity, in terms of what we feel like is necessary in the day-to-day environment to shape where we are on our path, those are the things where like John Kylie stuff, like that's to me is it's like, okay, yeah, periodization is a little bit more global in that way. But Kylie stuff, I think it, it, that's what, it, that's 100% what he's talking about is there's something to pedagogy. There's something to biology and there's something to physics and we can, we have a powerful, we can have a powerful effect on those things. Um, and that's where, you know, the day-to-day work of, you know, how you navigate that environment, that's how you handle things like that. So some of it, you know, it's essentially, you know, you have a strategy and then you have to manage that with the appropriate tactics and that comes off as, you know, whatever really, uh, uh, what would you say? Really kind of artificial Mm. when you think about it, but then when you narrow in on it, you're just talking about like the, uh, the book scrum that Mladen talks a lot about and, uh, like that to me was a periodization book. Like, and that's the way that Mladen's taken it. And I mean, and it's brilliant, you know, like, and you read the book and you're like, and then that led me to the book Boyd that talks about the fighter pilot and the creation of the OODA loop and his energy maneuverability theory. And that's the, the OODA loop is observe, orient, decide, act. And it basically just tells you like, you know, start where you are with what you see and then orient that around what you have. Like, are there patterns that you recognize? You know, is there a cultural influence that's going to change how people are looking at things? Look at trainability, look at somebody's genetics, and then that establishes your baseline where you're starting from. And you've got a lot of stuff to start making decisions and taking action with, but that all, I mean, it just, like, uh, 
I went through a, a recruitment process recently and uh, my wife was looking at some of my materials and she was like, oh, this is all theoretical. I was like, it's 100% not. And her, her mindset was like, well, that's not how you make decisions. I'm like, it 100% is like, you're, you just and you'll recognize how you make decisions. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's a lot of people think that it's more intuitive. Uh, like Dr. Nymphius and I were talking and she said, oh, I think all those leadership books are like, it's just like common sense. And I'm like, for you, I'm like, you're, I mean, you're a genius, you know, like but when you're talking about how to navigate, you know, coaching relationships and other things, like some of these people, like they need that message put straight out in front of them, you know, like whether it's a motivational message or if it's a philosophical, or if it's something that talks about, Hey, you know, how do we communicate? There's a, another text called tribal leadership. And I always talk to people about it because it basically says language will tell you where somebody's at and that should influence how you go about managing and leading them. Because if their language is wrong and they're disconnected from your organization and from your structure, then you're not going to be influential on them. They feel like you're like, you're not, you're not, you're not them. They feel like you guys are different. So in tribal leadership, there's five levels and the first level. And I always say you, you'll immediately recognize the people that you work with and where they are level wise. The first level is life sucks. And those people are like everything about the world sucks. <laughs> so you don't see them a lot in uh, team sport environments, but when you do, they make their presence known. The second one, it's very personal. It's my life sucks. The third is uh, I'm great. And that's where they think that they're great, but everybody else in the organization sucks. The fourth level is uh, we're great, and that's when there's a collective, which you kind of refer to in terms of the process and what you guys had developed in, uh, in leading to the World Cup experience that you had. And then level five is life is great, and that's when the organization transcends competitiveness and kind of just exists for itself because it's just excellence. It's just what you do. And most of us have never experienced that in our uh, work environments. Yeah. <laughs> it's And it's – it's not considered to be sustainable. And it's, that's the main thing is people are going to dip and kind of move in and out of those levels. So you'll have somebody who's a life is great person one day. And then the next day they'll be a, Hey, you know, I'm great, but the rest of you guys suck and you're making my job hard. You know, like we, we're all going to move back and forth. The key is, is, you know, recognizing it and then, you know, not staying there, right. Like being willing to, you know, address behaviors and, and take steps to appropriate towards appropriate action. For sure. I mean, do you think it's, how, how do you approach that politically as a strength coach when you're obviously yeah. trying to influence structure, relationships, and problem-solving organization-wide? Do you, do you have to be subtle about it, or are you just going to say, listen, like I've, <laughs> I've read this book, here's what I think, and then kind right. of get front about it? Right. Yeah. Some of it, like, I, I mean, I definitely wouldn't approach it. And that's, you know, like there was, there was something shared recently where I, I, I'll, I'll not be specific, but, uh, where a bunch of coaches were saying, Oh, Hey, this is what I have to deal with. It was from a, a major TV show. And there was a strength coach pointing out, he was having a conversation with the head coach trying to get him to adjust practice. And the head coach just kept blowing his whistle. Like, I'm not doing anything. I'm going to keep doing exactly what I'm doing. And I'm like, and that, that, specific like that the guy that was, was was doing it he's a great coach but that was not tactically a very good move like it really it just exposes the bias towards the sport coach that like he's got control of it but that's not the that's not the appropriate place for a conversation like that and it's like and also like the timing of that like just like periodization or anything else it's like you've got to consider the timing like in terms of contingency necessity you have to start you know with the quote quote unquote stay in your lane like uh, doing your job part and you need to do that well. And once you establish some competency there and credibility, credibility, uh, this is another definition from McChrystal is he says, credibility is, uh, proven competence, competence plus trust plus, in, plus integrity. So it's like, if you have those things where you've established some of that, then you're going to have, uh, 
more leeway with your coach, but you still have to be tactical. You always have to be tactical. You know, like there's a, with the, the book, the 48 laws of power. I was reading that and I was like, this is like, I work with these people. I've dealt with these people. I'm not one of these people, but I need to understand this language. Cause there's people who I can tell tactically have done this to me, <laughs> you know, like I've had this done to me and it hurt. Uh, so, you know, like, I, like, I think just being more informed on that so that you understand, you know, whether, you know, whether you're playing chess with somebody or whether you're playing checkers, you know, some people go, they just go completely around you and how they get to the decision that they're, that they're, uh, that they want to happen. And if you've been played like that, then you had better learn to be more tactical about how to navigate your environment, you know? And, uh, uh, I feel like I haven't really answered specifically like how you handle that, but you know, uh, with respect to the timing element, like, yeah, that's, that's like, uh, I, like, I think, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to, to, to give you some clarity on it, but uh, it's really such a broad topic. I could go in and, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't yeah. want to become more ambiguous by trying to <laughs> over explain it. <laughs> um, you know, thinking about this, I mean, we've been speaking nearly an hour here and we've, we've not really talked about the specifics of training. It's been more kind of organizational and research and different ideas and stuff, but in terms of your influences as a strength coach, who, who have been the, mm-hmm. the biggest influences on you as, as a practitioner and as a technician? And what yeah, do you take I mean, away from them? Yeah, 100% Dan Paff. Like he influences like, I mean, pro- probably just like, I mean, even to the, his TCACC lectures that are just gold, I listen to that and I'm like, that's exactly how I want to navigate my thinking. I want to think different. I want to think like that. And, and, and that's really like, and a lot of me is some of the stuff Dan says, like, I can't make sense of like, because his, his language, like the way that he navigates, you know, neurophysiology and other things like, and then some of that is also, I'm like, I'm sure Dan understands this, but conveying that to the rest of us, like, it sounds kind of ambiguous, you know, like, so I'm like trying to determine, and, and I believe that for, for, for a standard like that, I'm like, when, when it, it comes out, I'm like, if there's something that Dan says that I can contribute towards achieving greater clarity for myself or for, for people that I coach, so I can take that message and make it stronger, then that's, that's what I think that you're trying to do for people like that. There's a, someone told me once that, uh, you take what your mentors give you and then you take it further. Right. And that's with respect to what Dan's done. I'm like, there's, I mean, I can't take it further. I can maybe just round out the message and make it more robust in some way. I told the same thing to Dr. Nymphius recently, but, uh, I would say Dan path and then Dr. Shepard specifically, I think with volleyball, but just in terms of his leadership and also like, he's someone who his skill with, you know, whether we're talking about the Canadian framework or just as a leader, I think a lot of people underestimate that. I mean, I mean, he's been super successful. So, I mean, there's plenty of people who believe enough in his message, but I think that there's people in strength and conditioning that, you know, I've talked about Dr. Shepard with, and they're kind of like, eh, you know, he's okay. And I'm like, you're not looking closely enough, you know, like, cause yeah. if you do, then I mean, his success with surfing Australia and now I'm with Canadian sport Institute Pacific. And then also, if you look at the people that he's, he's, helped as a mentor within the field and the kind of work that they're doing, which has involved the guys at CSI Pacific for a long time. Like, I mean, if you look at that facility specifically with respect to the Rio Olympics, like, and then, uh, winter Olympics and whatnot, like, and, and if you talk to those people about Dr. Shepard's influence and you're like, this is, I mean, this is outlier stuff. You He's know? knocking like, out of the park. 
Right. 100%. And that's, and, but that's a subtle thing. Cause he's not quick to talk about like those kinds of things and who he's doing those things for the work that he's doing. Like you kind of, with some people like that, you gotta, you have to really, you know, impress on them. Like, Hey, I need to, I need to get deeper into this. I need to know what, what it is that you do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, what's going to be in the future for you? What, what are your goals? Right now, it's uh, it's definitely transitional. After finishing the grad school program with uh, with uh, Edith Edith Cowan, like I'm uh, I'm definitely like, like I mentioned, I, I went through a recruiting process recently, and that that was not the right situation for my family. So it's it's trying to figure out uh, uh, what I can do to push the field forward, but trying to embrace the right opportunity that you know my feet can be underneath of me, so I can I can just focus on doing the work. Uh, so, you know, I'm not really sure in that regard. I've, I've been discussing some things with Forstex about, you know, what my ne- next steps may be. That may be a PhD, uh, which I wasn't especially keen on. Like, I, I would ideally be in uh, an, impl- an applied environment, which, you know, I've just dis- discussed that with some people recently as well. Uh, I, I would like, I'd prefer to spend, you know, five, six, ten years even before going back to do something like that. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of really identify what real needs are so I don't become further removed from from that environment by just digging deep into the academics. But I'm, I'm not I'm not at the point where I'm trying to dictate my next step. I'm just trying to be aware of what opportunities, you know, so observation wise, I'm trying to make sure I got my eyes open to make sure that I'm ready for those things and just doing the best I can to do work between now and then that reflects that. Awesome. Where, where can people get in contact with you online? uh twitter my twitter handles in theos athletic my facebook stuff i've got an in theos athletics and theos spelled e-n-t-h-e-o-s but i've got a page but it's not been in a, a strong point of emphasis because i've been so academic lately but uh and then my facebook's been more private i don't mind connecting with people i'm just you're going to see a lot of kids stuff and a lot yeah. of uh, <laughs> other stuff in my life which is uh, a perfectly i'm perfectly happy and content with that part of it, like being my kid's hero is definitely high on one of my goals is making sure that by taking a step one way, I don't take a step away from, away from that. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on.